Welcome back, everybody, to Principles in Practice, where we talk with industry-leading executives about their theories on leadership and how they apply those every day in their routines. This week, we are talking about people development with Michael Erzman, who's got 25 years of HR experience working as a global HR chief people officer at multiple different companies, including PushPay, DocuSign, and Parallels. Uh, we're also joined by Chris Heeslip, of course, who is the co-founder and CEO of Leader. He's also already had the chance to work with Michael over at PushPay, which was one of Chris's very successful startups. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hear from them. All right. Well, hey, it's a privilege today to welcome uh, Michael Erisman to join us on our podcast, talking about our principles and practice. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Well, hey, I thought a great place to get started is, I mean, you've worked for small businesses, large businesses, startup businesses, you work with nonprofits. Tell us about how you made your way into the HR world. You know, it's an interesting story, Chris. The only advice I ever got from my father uh, way back when was, whatever you do, don't go into HR. <laughs> this is literally what he told me. Uh, you know, so early in my career, I did all kinds of different things. I built houses. Uh, you know, I, I ran a catering company. Here in Seattle, we did uh, catering for concerts and films, and I worked with literally rock stars, and, and uh, I went into the hospitality business from there as well. And so when I made a decision to go back to graduate school uh, after I'd finished um, college, I really had a passion for psychology and also a passion for business. And so as I thought about how do those two things blend, I was introduced to this thing called industrial organizational psychology, which is really the science and more the business application of, of people and people dynamics. And, and that's really what led me into HR. You know, I, I got a phone call from my father who said, uh, I met somebody at GE. It's the first time I've ever seen someone do HR in the way I thought HR should be done. Uh, and that led to a couple introductions and I ended up getting hired at, at, uh, at GE into an HR role. And, you know, I was really, as soon as I got into it, Chris, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to do this. It was really fun. I get to do a little bit of everything, a little bit of, you know, the technical side and a lot around compensation and a lot of spreadsheets and analytics and you're dealing with people and people issues and dynamics. And so, you know, once probably two months into the job, I just thought this is the right place for me and I can make a real impact. I love it. And one of the things, I mean, you and I uh, have opportunity to work together and, you know, you have really helped change my mind and my approach on how to see HR. I mean, before I met you, I just thought HR was a compliance function. How do we not get sued? You know, and that kind of thing. But yeah. you told, you told me some things that really changed my mind. Share with our audience what some of those were. Well, you know, I think a lot of times people think about HR as the technical practices, right? The compliance, as you mentioned. And those things are important. If people don't get paid correctly, if they don't get onboarded correctly, if you don't follow local rules and regulations, I mean, those things obviously, um, you know, uh, really can impact your organization. But it's much more than that. It's really, if you think about it, 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 it almost doesn't matter what organization you're in. The difference between your ability to succeed or not is going to come down to your people. Not only which people you have, but how those people work together, you know, how they achieve something greater than themselves, you know. And if you think about what HR really is supposed to be about, it's about no matter what your organization is, there are people implications in every decision you make. 
So if you decide to go one direction or a different direction or launch a new product or you decide to serve your community in a different way, whatever those decisions are and what, for whatever reason they're made, they have people implications. That could, that could be do you have the right people, change management. How do you communicate? How do you make change happen in an organization? How do you think ahead about what's the workforce I'm going to need to accomplish what I need to do a year from now, two years from now? And let me give you, a, I think, a real practical example of this, Chris, because there was an organization I walked into not too long ago, and they had sort of a, as a cultural ideology, you, you can only work when you're in the office. Now, think about us in a COVID environment right now where we're all working remotely. And the organizations that were able to get out ahead of that and say, what does technology enable us to do? How do we think about this from a completely different perspective? It opens up who I can hire. It opens up how I communicate. And the organizations that were ahead of that curve, when a pandemic hit and all of a sudden you had to work from home, they didn't miss a beat. You know, they just, they just kept going. And organizations that were less flexible, um, you know, had a dip, more difficult time making that transition. And I think that's fundamentally what HR is supposed to do. What are the people implications of what's happening in the world and what we want to accomplish? And how do you think ahead? So what's that going to be in 2025? You know, we don't know, but we need to be thinking about it. Mm. And that's where you want HR to partner with you and be thinking not just about, you know, do I have the right talent and are people paid correctly? But are we prepared for where we're going? Are we ready to lead in a different way? Are we ready? Do we have the right tools to enable people to lead in a different way? Do we have, um, you know, are the people today going to be the people that we need tomorrow? These are all really important decisions that have to be made and need to be thought about. That's really what HR is all about at the end of the day. Well, that change of thinking about HR instead of being a reactive, we're you know reacting to what's happening in our environment to a proactive one. And that means thinking about what culture do we need? What competencies do we need? you know, three, five years from now, I think was something that really was revolutionary because right. if HR then is responsible for helping advise the executives in an organization to think about the future, mm-hmm. that places a, a it, it changes HR's responsibility from being something that's, you know, the referee and the scorekeeper to being someone who's on the field actually helping the organization move forwards. Yeah, and actually even thinking ahead of where the organization is going to make sure that, we have the ability to execute. You know, as you think of, as you know, strategy is great, but if you don't execute, if you, if you don't actually make it happen, you know, it's not going to amount to anything. You know, and that's a, you know, that's a, we can assume that people are interchangeable cogs, but we know better. You know, we know that there's the dynamics involved in getting people engaged and motivated and enabling people to achieve something, you know, is complex. And, and that's where HR needs to be thinking all the time. Well, you have a pretty atypical background for someone in HR. I mean, you worked in, uh, you know, smaller companies. How did that help you when you came, when it came to working in larger organizations and, and from an HR perspective, how did that, how did that early kind of business background help you? Well, I think a lot of the challenge that you get in HR functions is you've already mentioned it. You know, you're thinking about process as opposed to thinking about what are we trying to accomplish as a business. I, I always try to kind of look at it like a gap analysis. What is the outcome we're trying to get? Where are we now? What's the gap in between? And what levers can we pull to get there? And I think about that lens through a people prism. 
you know, the, the CFO thinks about that lens through a financing and, and, you know, revenue and, or, you know, investment uh, perspective, you know, and, and everyone plays a role, but you need to be thinking about it from that perspective. The challenge when you get into larger corporations is just the scale of it. The scale becomes so massive and trying to get 10 people aligned to something is hard enough. Trying to get 10,000 people aligned to something, 100,000 people aligned to something, you know, trying to make quick decisions that allow you to adjust to a rapidly changing business and climate and, you know, customer demands when you have 100,000 people is really hard, right? Because the larger you are, the tougher it is to kind of steer that shift. You know, and so I think those are the things that, um, that I learned along the way was how to scale something and how to well, be thinking ahead. And on that exact point, I mean, you've been part of small organizations and large ones. I've heard some people say that an HR or people development hire should be a, a first five hire. Uh, and yet most organizations I think and, and have met with, you know, think about it at 40, 50, 60 people. Ah, oh, I guess I have to go and hire someone to do HR. Yeah. Where do you fall along that? And, where, and how do you see, uh, you know, the role of HR changing as organizations scale? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I don't know that I would go and invest necessarily in an HR role um, that early in, a, in an organization's development, but I would take all the concepts and be thinking about it, right? I mean, one of the things that, you know, smaller organizations can really benefit from is a lot of times they, they go focus their advisory boards or they focus their external resources on funding. You know, who can, who can fund this initiative? Who can create that, those opportunities for me? It's just as important to reach out to people who can help guide you in that growth curve because it's not necessarily about what you go put in place. It's about when a lot of organizations that I've had the privilege of working with over the last 10 years or so, I've had to go in and say, you know, what you just put in place around your performance management system or maybe your bonus structure or something is way too complex for where you are. You know, you, you borrowed something from a large company but it doesn't work in a small company. You need to be much more agile. So a lot of times the, the challenge is not what do you put in place, but when do you put it in place? And there's an advantage to partnering with people who have seen something at scale and can help you sort of recognize when that development curve is happening and when you need to, to put more focus in it. Now, if you think about the basic blocking and tackling, you know, you you still have to get that stuff right. You know, you have to make sure people get paid. So I think it's almost less about an HR person or a role and more about are we thinking about those concepts? Every day am I thinking about, you know, what does this look like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? If I add 10 more people to the mix, how do those dynamics change? If we want to change from this approach to that approach, what needs to be in place? And if I'm thinking about those dynamics all the time, you know, it's not about do I need to go hire an HR person? It's do I need to get someone who is skilled in these areas to partner with me and help my leaders and my management team do it effectively? Fantastic. And thinking along the same lines, you know, specifically kind of small organizations, what are some of the other mistakes you've seen them make when it comes to HR as a role of, you know, business advisor slash people development? You know, I think it's, you know, one of the things is you're always hiring for what you needed yesterday. So think about that. You know, uh, usually what impacts your hiring is budget and you hire for the size of organization you are. 
And the challenge with that is that naturally, if you think about this from a, almost a mathematical perspective, what that's doing is it's constantly putting a ceiling on your ability to grow. So the challenge is where do, when do I go over higher? When, you know, if, if I'm thinking it, I'll go back to a couple of, uh, you know, organizations I've been a part of. Um, I won't name any of them by name, but one of them in particular where we were growing really, really quickly. But, you know, what we had to constantly be thinking about is if we're going to go in a new direction, create a new product line or, or create a new way to service our customers, who's the first hire I make in that direction? It typically is a, like a BP level. I need to get somebody who can understand this entire thing and then let them build the team in behind them, right? So then you start adding the people who are the doers as you go. The challenge with that is that it, it's difficult from a budget standpoint to sort of reconcile how do I get this person who I'm hiring to pull the organization forward as opposed to hiring somebody that fits in my budget right now and then hoping that they can get there. You know, and that's not a, you know, there's a lot of things that you have to balance, Chris, obviously. Um, but that's one of the ways to be thinking about it is, you know, when I go to hire somebody, am I hiring somebody that has those experiences, has that three-dimensional capability to take our organization forward and lead us? Or am I hiring somebody to manage what I have in place today and then hoping they can get us forward? And that's probably one of the most fundamental decisions that gets made. And it, you know, whether or not it's a, um, you know, it's a, a big investment uh, or a small investment, you still need to be thinking about it the same way. Well, and one of the, that's, probably, that's probably the biggest mistake because large companies already have the scale and structure to be able to, to go out and get those kind of hires. Smaller companies have much more limited resources and have to think much more strategically about the ROI and how they spend it. Well, and I think on that exact point, one of the things I've heard you talk about is how in different roles you've had before, you've actually had to hire someone a bit more junior and invest into them and help them grow into that role. Have you got any thoughts on that or stories that you've, experiences you've had to help uh, someone thinking about, well, I really need that person you've talked about to lead and, and pull us in that direction, but I, I simply don't have the budget available to hire someone from Google or Microsoft. And, and how, how would you think about that and, and how have you done that right. before? Well, you know, I think that to me is the most satisfying thing. And if I think about my entire career, right, what I look at is, you know, you forget all the business success you've had and you forget the programs you put in place and the things that worked and, and, and all those things. But what you remember are the people that you impacted. And one of the things that I'm most proud of if I look at my own career is there's probably two or three dozen people running HR for large companies right now that used to work for me. And and so recognizing someone who has that talent, recognizing someone who has that potential, and then creating a scenario where you can allow them to succeed is really important. But it's but it's also it's a risk, Chris. And this is the thing where I think it I think people have much more capacity than we give them credit for. I think when anyone looks at their organization, the challenge is we tend to put people into little, into little boxes. We tend to think of them as, okay, you're this person in this box and you have this background, as opposed to thinking about what happens if I give this person a complex set of problems to go solve and I coach them along the way. Can I help them get there? You know, and, you know, I think success or failure is going to depend entirely 
on an organization's ability to do that. And we can think about that in sports analogies. It's really simple, right? Because you're drafting players that you don't know if they're going to be good or not. And so you have to be a, become a very good judge of, of talent, number one. And number two, you have to put people in a system that enables them to be successful. You know, I actually had a person one time come to me and tell me, um, Michael, you need to stop treating me as you see me in terms of my potential because I actually don't want those things. I actually don't want to grow. I don't want to have a career. I don't want to be at the next level. And I really appreciated that feedback because, you know, for this individual at that time in their life, they're like, look, I just want to come in, do my job and go home. I'm not interested in, in growing and developing and doing these things. And it was really valuable because I was able to help that person be more successful where they were. But what it also told me was I was inherently looking at everyone through the lens of how can I help you get to the next level, as opposed to seeing people as assets, you know, and a lot of times when I work with leaders, they, I look, they look at their organizations and I say, well, tell me about these people. And what they will describe is the role they're in now. And they don't, that's it. They don't describe, they don't think about, okay, well, this is where this person could go. This is the aspirations that person has. This is where I think they have a potential. They're not thinking about, you know, as we maybe expand this program, what I'm thinking about is moving this person over to this role. So now they get both sides of this equation, and then eventually they could maybe take my job. That's a totally different way to think about talent, you know, and that's, and that's where these investments are going to pay off. And, you know, it, a lot of times organizations will look at their people and make the expectation they're always going to stay the same. And how do you deal and with it? Surprised when people leave, and I'm like, why are you surprised? This is organizations, Chris, are like looking at a river from a distance. It looks the same, but when you get up close, it's constantly changing. Every single person on your team today, if you're listening to me today, every single person on your organization is in development. They are in transition. They are either coming into something or they're going to something or they're learning or they are growing. That's just the way, that's the way it is for all of us. And we as leaders need to make sure that we are recognizing that that's the reality of, of our people. We can't think of them as these boxes. And, and I can't tell you how many times people will come to me and say, okay, well, this person left. I need to, re, I need to backfill that person and put someone else in that box as opposed to be, th you know, thinking about, Every person's going to have an arc within our organization. They're going to join and they're going to exit at some point. That's just reality. In, in this day and age, it used to be people would work 10 years. Now we're lucky if people work two, maybe three. So we don't like own these employees. If you think about it in that analogy, we lease them for a couple of years. And so if we recognize that, then the question is, how do we help them develop and grow? And then how does that correlate back to what we need as an organization? And the leaders but, that tap into that have an infinite amount of potential within their teams. But uh, I mean, let's play this through. I'm a I'm a manager, and I'm I'm trying to train people up to take my job. What does that mean for me? <laughs> That's one of the greatest questions, Chris. You know, and we do these things called succession planning. So succession planning tip used to be thing, thought of as sort of the emergency backfill, right? You know, if I get hit by a bus or maybe a more positive way, I win the lottery, right? I leave. Who's going to take my place? And instead, think about it this way, Chris. If your people had your capability to do what you do today, what could you get to go spend your time on? What are the untapped opportunities and potential that you simply don't have time to get to today? 
That's what we're trying to tap into. That's what we're trying to get. We're trying to, if I can help somebody on my team take over a couple of things or, or do some of what I'm capable of doing, that frees up capacity for me to go innovate and do new and, and better things or improve things in other areas. You know, and that's, that's that potential we need to tap into. And it's a win-win, right? Because your people are developing and growing and you're getting the capacity to go and, and innovate and do new things. Well, I've heard you say that you've also helped people on your team find other jobs. Uh, I mean, that, you know, that sounds like an incredibly selfless thing. I mean, do you get, talk about that story. And then also, like, did you get blowback from your boss, you know, when, when you help someone find another job? And, and, and how did that come about? Yeah, this happened over and over and over again. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one example that was really interesting. I had a person that worked for me, and um, she, got a, she got a job offer with, with this company. And I... I said, look, you have to take this job. You have to take it. And she goes, what do you mean? I mean, like, what about, you know, what we're trying to do? What about you? And I said, oh, don't get me wrong. I'm completely screwed here, right? I mean, I have no idea how I'm going to replace you. Seriously, this is not going to be easy for me. I'm going to have to do your job and my job. And, you know, I have nobody. But I said, there's nothing I can offer you that is going to be the potential of what this is. And you have to go do that. If at some point you do not care more about your people as people, than you do as employees, then um, then I think you know you're doing them a disservice. And so in that particular case, she went to this company. Once she got there, she told the the leader over there, "Hey, you know, you need to go talk to this guy who was my boss." I ended up working for that company as well. Wow. Uh, but this happens this happens all the time. I'll just give you two quick things. The first one is mistake number one: when your people leave, and I don't, I don't mean you have to let somebody go for lack of performance or some sort of code of conduct or some issue. But when somebody gets another opportunity and a chance to develop and grow, mistake number one is you have to celebrate that. And what happens oftentimes is organizations have this sort of mentality that says, the second you decide to go work somewhere else, you're dead to me. You know, you, you've now betrayed us or, you know, you're going, you know, it's, you're now leaving. And, and they tend to see that as a negative. Instead of tend to flipping it around and, and, and really celebrate it and say, hey, look, this person came onto my team. What they've been able to do while working for me is build these skills and experiences, and that's enabled them to get this other opportunity beyond what they could have had here, and we need to celebrate that because that creates this flywheel for other people who want to join your organization knowing they get to learn and grow and develop. You know, if you're a small business, I mean, if you're a let's start with a larger, if you're a large business, and you have somebody leave your organization, go to another company, it could be a, an advantage to actually have a better relationship with that other company in a B2B sense, right? If you're a smaller business, if you're a, if you're a church, for example, I know you work, a lot of your customers are churches, and somebody leaves your organization, you want to celebrate them. You want to say this is part of their journey, and, and you know we thank them for what they've done here. And they've helped raise the bar. And we know the next person that comes in is going to help raise the bar to the next level and so on. And celebrating those people has a profound impact on everybody who's still there. Because the, the message that gets sent, and it's not intentional, I don't believe, is this is the only real place for you to be. And if you're not here, you're somehow now failed us. But what message does that send to everybody who's still working there? As opposed to the message of, we want you here, we want you engaged, we want this to be part of your growth and your journey, 
But we also want you to recognize that, you know, you're going to be able to take these skill sets and do a whole bunch of other things in life. Hopefully it stays with us. Hopefully we keep growing and, and your opportunities grow with us. But if it's an opportunity for you to go somewhere, maybe for personal reasons, location reasons, maybe it's a, you know, career change. Or maybe you have somebody who's a rock star in their job and this person sees that that's the job I want. and I'm not going to be able to get it. You want those people to be successful and, and to be able to be part of, of and have you be part of their career journey. Um, it is selfless in some ways, and I believe we are called as leaders to be selfless. We are called to, to lead our teams in a way that helps them be successful and helps our organizations be successful more so than just ourselves. But I think beyond that, it has a real practical application. If people can know that they, if I come work for Chris, I know that, hey, I went and worked for Chris and I learned all these things. And because of that opportunity, I was able to go do something else. I'm going to tell people that. Mm. If people come and call me and say, hey, I'm think, uh, thinking about a job with leader. What do you think? And that person says, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love those people. And this is what I was able to learn there. And I was there, you know, four years and then enabled me to go get this job. That's going to attract more people. That's just going to help the organization. But again, it goes back to that mentality of seeing your organization is always in transition as everyone is always part of a journey and it's our job to make the most of those people where they are, but to enable them to continue that journey with us, without us, you know, et cetera. That's phenomenally challenging because I, I myself have been that leader who's like, I need to hold on to that person. I can't uh-huh. afford it if they leave. And by doing that, you actually give them a greater incentive to leave. So it's really uh, challenging to think this way because yeah. it, it really is 180 degrees different from how uh, we're taught to think as leaders to try and hold on to these people. Um, yeah. But talk to me about, um, you talked before about high potential leaders. What kind of frameworks have you got or have you developed over time to develop people? And, and how do you kind of find out who's high potential or who's not? How do you how do you kind of help them take on more challenges and opportunities in the organization? Yeah, you know, this is less of a science, I think, than we'd all like it to be, right? It'd be great if there was some test you could have somebody take. You know, but the reality of it is that um, we operate in such complex environments, it's difficult sometimes to recognize where someone's potential is. Some of it comes from getting to know the person and and understanding how they react to things and then using that as a predictor for how they might react to things in the future. But let me give you a real practical thing. One of the things that um, has worked really well for me over time is I would sit down with an organization. I do this on my own team. I've done this on my own team for 25 years. And I'll say, okay, what are all the things I have to go accomplish? Let's say I have a list of those things. I got, I got like six to eight. These are to-dos and these are projects or these are goals that I have. And then I go look over at my team and I say, okay, who do I think some of the people are that have the most potential and stretch to be able to impact? And now imagine you're looking at a whiteboard and you've got two lists. You got a list of stuff you got to get done and you got a list of people and you just start matching them up. And I, I would sit down and I'd say, okay, Taylor, you are going to go work on this project with this person. You know, in addition to what you're doing now, I want you to contribute over here, right? Because two things happen. Number one, Taylor gets an opportunity to learn something, to do real work and get real feedback. So it's not like I'm sending you to a class, and I'll talk about that in a second. 
it's I'm, she's doing real work, gets real time feedback and gets to contribute. So I get to get a sense for how well did she do in that particular situation. But most importantly, I actually get my project done. And, and that's really what we're trying to accomplish. Right. So think about that simple, simple exercise. A, a, a guy who I used to work with, um, you know, years ago, incredibly wise guy. He kind of coined this thing called he called it pinpointing. And he just simply said, this is how you develop your high potential talent is instead of taking someone and sending them to a course. So a lot of times we think about development and people, you know, am I being developed? And I take someone and say, look, I think a lot of you, so I'm going to go send, have you go take this week-long executive development course. And then what happens is you spend a lot of money, you send that person to the course, then they come back into the job, and then you basically say, I'm not going to let you do anything that I just trained you on how to do. Because it doesn't fit within the context of your job. And, and that's, you've spent a lot of money, you've maybe educated somebody, but you haven't really given them the opportunity to apply it. So it's all about this application opportunity. If you want to understand the potential of your people, first of all, you got to make a judgment at some point. It's not a perfect science and you're not going to get them all right. But if you make a call on somebody, you have to give them application opportunity to show up in a real way, doing real work with a little bit of risk back on you because it's possible they're not going to do well. So you need to be prepared to coach them and help them develop through that. But you have to give them an opportunity to apply it. And when you do that, you will know really quickly. And a lot of times what I've found is um, people have a tendency to rise to the expectations that you set. For them. So if you give them expectations and you raise the bar and you say, I believe you can get there and I'm going to help you get there and I'm going to coach you through it. I'm not going to micromanage you and do it for you, but I'm going to coach you through it. Come to me. We'll bounce ideas back and forth. You know, most of the time people will uh, not disappoint us. In fact, they will out. A lot of times they will be more successful than we even thought. So make a judgment on someone based on what you know, create an application opportunity for them to be successful and then get out of their way and let them do it. And when you create that kind of environment, uh, you know, you really can pay dividends. And, you know, I've been so humbled and I've been so, you know, proud of some of the stuff that people have done, you know, and I've given people opportunities. I'll be honest with you at the time, I wasn't sure they were going to do it. You know, and at the end of the day, as a leader, I'm still responsible for whether it gets done or not. But I would say, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, people rise to the, the occasion and they're really successful. And, you know, you've heard that adage of, you know, people aren't going to care about what you say until they know that you care about them as a person. And, you know, if people feel valued, now this is a universal, I've seen it in every country in the world. I've, I've worked in 110 or so countries around the world. It's a universal. If people feel valued as a person and people, so, someone is believing in them and trusting them and encouraging them, um, most of the time, you know, the outcome is really positive. That's fantastic in terms of just, you know, really giving people that opportunity to shine, I think is, is massive and it also helps us. I mean, it's got a, a kind of a, a self-serving element too that it helps get the work done that we need done. Absolutely. Um, Michael, I'd love to hear like, uh, you know, you worked at General Electric and, you know, I know they had the, just an incredible uh, approach to investing in their people. Tell us about some of your learnings, how much of your approach was shaped by you know, your time there. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was fortunate to join uh, GE back in the, the mid-90s when they were the sort of, they would be like the Apple or Amazon of today, uh, number one company in the world. And their CEO, a guy named Jack Welch, had a, a kind of a unique at the time perspective about this. And, you know, he's gotten uh, a lot of criticism as well for it. But he had this mentality, essentially, that it was all about people. In fact, he was one of the first CEOs of a major company to to really say, you know, and he used the analogy of a baseball team. He said, look, if you own the Boston Red Sox, he was a big Red Sox fan, would you spend more time with your accountant or your director of player personnel? And the answer is, of course, you'd spend time with your people, with your players, you know, because that's, that's the whole point of it is to get the best talent and the players to win. And he was the one that really came back and said, you have to invest in your spend time. You should be spending time with your HR person and you should be investing and partnering in people. And what he did is he put things in place that first he had a philosophy, which is how do I identify our top talent and how do I give those people opportunities to make a difference? So if you think about GE at the time was like a mutual fund, right? It was all these different businesses like light bulbs and train engines and NBC and plastics and all kinds of GE capital, all kinds of stuff. But what he did is he looked at leaders and he moved those people around. He said, who's a great leader? And he would take somebody who might have come up through the plastics division and say, I want you to go run GE appliances. Because what he was looking at was their leadership capability. And he was looking at how can you go in, figure out who the right people are, get those people engaged and, and go deliver an outcome. And those things were really positive. Um, I, you know, I learned a lot of discipline uh, at GE. I learned about how to think through make those investments in people and spend time on it. You know, I remember coming into, I remember buying a company when I was a, a, I did this a lot in merger and acquisitions. And I remember the amount of work we'd have to do on that was, you know, a whole binder of stuff on, you know, you'd look at every single person and how are they going to be affected by this change and what skills do they have versus what skills are they going to need? And it was really it was really almost scientifically approached to saying, how do we set ourselves up for success? How do we make sure that we have the right culture? How do we make sure that we have all the things in place to enable these people to be successful? And then as I went from GE to another company, I may have taken 10 pages of that with me. And then when I went to another company, I took two pages of that. And then by the time I got into tech, I would boil it down to maybe a couple of paragraphs, right? Because, you know, in tech, we have short attention spans, as you know. So, but the challenges and the principles were always the same. If the best team wins. And look at your people, recognize who they are, um, figure out where you need to make bets on people and help those people grow. And then likewise, on the other end of the scale, if you are not managing the people who are not performing well, you're doing not only a disservice to your organization and to that person, but you're creating a culture that makes it more difficult for everyone else to be successful. And if you take an, you know, if you take a team, any team of 10 or 15 people, you know, and there's a person on that team that's not performing, it's not doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, other people are having to pick up the slack and help that person out. Everybody knows that. And if you as a manager do not go in and address that, you are essentially really limiting the entire team's perspective. And too often we get caught up into this thing of, well, maybe it's not nice to have these conversations or you know, we should really do more to help this person be successful. But at some point, you have to make those tough decisions that says we need this organization to be successful. And it's a disservice to the other people on the team 
if I don't go in and manage those people who aren't performing and, you know, and help them either succeed, hopefully, uh, or move them out and replace them with someone who can. So it was that approach to people, I think, that really taught me a lot and, um, and definitely the science of it. You know, we, we measured everything, you know, and we understood what the, you could see by looking at the data, what the trends were, and then go address those things before they happened. That's fantastic. You know, I think as a as an executive, as a manager, you often get what you tolerate. And you know, similarly yep. in my experience, the team always the team performance or output trends towards the the weakest performer, right? So if you don't address that, you know, you don't you shouldn't be surprised if eventually the whole team is not performing at the level of that that lowest possible person. And so you owe an obligation to the whole team to go and address that so that you can lift the bar rather than letting it slowly decline over time. Exactly. And if you think about the how to address recognition, how to address differentiation of talent, if you treat everybody the same, who amongst those people are going to be the most disillusioned by them? It's going to be your best, your best performers. They're working harder. They're delivering more. They recognize that. Other people recognize that. If you just go in and say, I want to be nice. I don't want to create any problems. I'm just going to treat everybody the same. The people that you are going to lose are your best people. You're not going to lose the people that are just kind of showing up and, you know, and maybe getting the minimum done. You're going to lose your best people. And that's the thing that uh, the other thing that really important lesson I learned out of out of that was if you don't manage and recognize that, you know, people are not the same and they're not performing at the same levels. You know, you need to make sure that you've got the right culture and you don't have bias and you don't have, you know, things that are unfair within your system to enable people to be successful. But when, when that playing field is, is there for people to be successful, you have to differentiate. A lack of differentiating amongst your performers is really going to hurt you more in the long run um, than any short-term pain you might experience by differentiation. Absolutely. Talk, one of the movies I love to watch, I love Band of Brothers. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like, you know, they talk about how the difference between the different divisions uh, in, in the movie is uh, the non-commissioned officers, you know, the people without formal educations who are effectively kind of line managers or team leaders. Um, I'd love to hear about how, how have you helped uh, – folks inside of an organization develop those kind of uh, frontline managers because the transition from a high-performing individual contributor to managing a team is probably one of the most difficult transitions because basically everything you do as a frontline employee is now no longer applicable as a manager. Obviously, you need to know the job, but it it requires a whole entire different skill set. How have you worked with organizations to help people making that transition and how have you seen that done well? Well, you know, you hit on, you hit the nail on the head, Chris. It's a different skill set. You know, if I was building, let's put it this way. If I was building a, um, put together a basketball team um, and I could pick a player, I'd probably pick, I don't know, Mike, Michael Jordan, right? Or Will Chamberlain or somebody like that. But if I was picking a coach, I wouldn't pick those two people or even close to it, right? Because they're completely different skill sets. And yet oftentimes what we do is we take our top performer, as you mentioned, and we make them manage the team, which means that they're not doing what we, what made them a top performer, selling or writing code or, you know, writing marketing content, whatever it may be. And then they're also not a very good leader of people. And so it's sort of a lose-lose scenario. So one of the things to look at is in your frontline managers are probably 
you know, are literally the canary in the coal mine for your entire organization and your entire culture. People experience your organization through the lens of who they work for. You know, I, I don't, I, you've heard the adage, people join companies and, you know, leave managers, et cetera. I think that's too simplistic. But there is a way that, that, that people experience their culture through who leads them. And so, number one, you have to recognize what do we expect from frontline managers and be really clear about that. You know, a lot of times it's, it's what I call the curse of knowledge, right? You and I have led people for so long, Chris. You know, if we were asked to sit down and articulate it, it would be tough for us to do that, right? Because we've forgotten what it's like to not know what we know. So you have to go to the basics and really make sure that people understand what they're supposed to do as a manager. Number two, I think, and the most important part of it is the emotional component. The toughest part of being a manager is not the what you do. It's not the activities. It's not, you know, deciding who does which work. And it's not, you know, completing tasks. The number one most difficult thing a manager has to deal with is the emotional component that comes from the fact that virtually every decision you make gets criticized. There's no way to keep everybody happy. <laughs> if everybody is happy, it's probably not the right thing. You know, and, and to be able to manage through and handle that. And so I think you need to give people a lot of coaching uh, on how to recognize and manage that emotional challenge that comes with it. So I would tell people, number one, um, when you're looking for people leaders, don't look for your best performers. Go out and talk to people and figure out who your informal leaders actually are. Because every organization has leaders. And some of them have leader in their title. Some of them are managers, but most of them are not. You know, one of the things that I used to work at Pepsi uh, years ago, they had this amazing onboarding experience where for the first 30 days, I went and I worked in grocery stores at three in the morning. I worked, I would, I rode on trucks all day long with, with drivers taking unloading products. I worked in the warehouse loading pallets, you know, I, and I did, I didn't even see my office for the first 30 days and I did every job there was personally, physically. And what was amazing about that was it gave me tremendous insights into, you know, into how things work and context for the, then the decisions I was going to make. But further, it also helped me understand who are the who are the informal leaders. If I wanted to go roll something out of the organization, a big change, HR change, I knew was going to maybe be controversial or, or, you know, people would struggle to understand the context of it. I'd go to those people and I'd say, hey, what do you think about this? And I'd figure out in the organization who is going to be my loudest voices for or against something. And I'd tap into those people. And so I think that doesn't happen enough. Um, so you also have to make sure that when you're putting frontline leaders in place, you don't set them up for failure. Meaning that you as, as the manager of managers plays a huge role. Don't put that person on an island and, and just say, I want this to happen. Now you go figure it out and you go make it happen. One of the, here's a, a really simple thing that organizations can do. A lot of times for speed and efficiency, they'll pull everybody in the team together and they'll do one announcement to everybody. Don't do that. Pull your managers in first, run a trial announcement by them and get their feedback. Because then when you roll the announcement out to everybody, whatever it is, whatever change it is or whatever you know, thing you want to announce, they will be better prepared. They will have had input into how that was communicated 
And then when their people ask questions of them, they won't be hearing it for the first time. That's a really simple thing that can help frontline leaders be successful. But, you know, at the end of the day, I would say um, hiring those people and making decisions on who to put in as a manager is one of the most difficult things. Um, and I wish I, you know, if I had a, if I could write a book on this, <laughs> Chris, I could, I, you know, I, I can make a ton of money and change a lot of lives. But, but really it goes back to thinking it, about it through a completely different lens. Who can communicate to people well? Who can get a pulse of an organization and help answer your questions? Who can be the face of what you want to do as, as the, the leader of the organization to your frontline employees and carry that message? Uh, and then how do you support those people and help them set up, be set up for success? I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours, Chris, on this, and there's a lot of good training out there, um, frontline manager training uh, that I would encourage everyone to participate in, and I'm happy to, to share some uh, links uh, with anybody who would like that. But it's a really important job. That's fantastic. And even I go back to um, one of the things that you told me when we first met was your time at DocuSign, uh, you know, you were uh, heading up HR there and you spent a lot of time with the salespeople, understanding the product, mm -hmm. uh, which then allowed you to help understand, you know, how to tie the goals that the organization had to the people implications. So right. talk about that um, last question here before we get into the quick fire, but mm -hmm. how did that work? And then like when you say people implications, you know, are you able to just drill down a little more on that as well? Sure, and we'll start with the second part first, which is people implications. What are the people implications of any decision you make? Well, number one, um, how do you communicate this? Is everybody, is everyone on the same page with what's expected? What's actually changing and what's not changing? What are the new rules of engagement? What can people do today that they couldn't do before or vice versa? What, you know, when you think about talent and measurement, how do you measure success? Did that change? You know, if you think about a sales uh, sales compensation plan, for example, or, or any kind of incentive plan that's incenting people on, on going out and doing something, those are really tricky, as you know, because people will deliver whatever they are measured <laughs> to deliver. And if you measure them on the wrong things, you will get a whole bunch of the wrong things, right? So that's an example of people implications and thinking through, you know, what what changes and being very articulate about that. You know, one of the things that we I've spent a lot of time with leaders on around change management is what, okay, let's say we're going to roll out a new product or we're going to do a service a particular way or we're going to have some change in the way we operate. Being very articulate about keep doing all of these things, stop doing these things, and start doing these things. Be really articulate about that. And and a lot of times we're not, right? We We just... Again, that curse of knowledge comes in. We don't think through it. We don't think, okay, well, maybe at a frontline level, this change I'm making doesn't make any sense. Maybe there's four or five things that well, I'm not even mentioning that because we made this change aren't going to work anymore. So tap into those people ahead of time. Say, hey, if we made this change and you're talking to customers every day, what would be the impact? And listen to it and understand it. That's exactly right. One of the things I had to learn as an organization to scale quickly is even the things you say, you don't say, how you carry yourself, 
as the leader of the organization, if you're not smiling, someone is interpreting that to mean something. Right. Um, and so would you say like change management, even just thinking through how things are communicated, at what size organization do you need to think about that? 10 people, 15 people? <laughs> um, how many people does it take to have a misunderstanding? <laughs> you know, last time I checked, it's not very many, right? So, you know, I think there there needs to be discipline around these things, period. Whether you have five people or whether you have, you know, 5,000 people. And, you know, we tend to get a little sloppier when we're smaller, right? We tend to just assume that in the hallways, we pull everyone in, we just, you know, have these conversations. But, you know, it doesn't work all, all the time. And so I think having some discipline and really thinking through, okay, we made this change. We have this new exciting thing we're going to go launch, right? Okay, we're now going to do this. We're going to now serve people in a different way. Great. Okay. Now let's take a step back. What are we not going to do anymore? What are we going to do differently? How are we going to do it differently? Are we going to measure people in a different way? What's expected of people? Because, you know, when you, ha- when you roll out a change to, to your organization, your people, every single person on your team is thinking through two things immediately. Number one, am I going to survive this change? Literally, am I going to still have a job? Does this impact me in some way? And number two, once they get past that, how do I now thrive in this new environment? Everyone's thinking that. So you can just hope that works and just hope it gets figured out over time. Or you can be really, really specific ahead of time and saying, I actually want to answer those questions right up front. If you have somebody where you're going to make a big change and maybe somebody's uh, job is influenced in a different way, pull that person aside well ahead of time or as much ahead of time as you can and articulate really clearly, this is what we're doing. This is what I need from you. I'm excited to have you here. This is what's changing. This is what's not changing. You know, and try to get that buy-in ahead of time. Because then when you go roll this out, you have a better chance of success, right? It's just thinking through those things and being um, disciplined around it. Because if you're in an organization, and I have been, of 100,000 people, you have to be very, very precise around making sure everyone's on the same page. you got to write everything down. you got to communicate it over and over and over and over again. You can't make changes every 10 minutes because people get confused. You have to have that discipline because it's at scale. However, that's not a bad practice to have at any level. If you've got 10 people in your organization, it's a great practice to write things down, to understand, you know, this is what it means for us. You know, I remember some of the cultural changes I've, I've you know, we've, we've been trying, we tried to push through in some organizations, and we literally wrote down, this is our old culture, this is our new culture. This is what we used to do, this is what we're going to do now. And so people understood that. You know, and then get some input ahead of time so you know that it makes sense, right? And we've all been on the receiving end of somebody in corporate somewhere rolls something out. And we all roll our eyes and go, what moron came up with this, right? Because this is never going to work. And likewise, we've all been in the position that we push stuff out and had people come back and say, what was that person thinking? Because they didn't even consider all of these issues. So I think being disciplined, Chris, is uh, is critical. And you know, it's not about any kind of compliance or anything. It's about you want, it's about speed. You want to be as effective as fast as you can. And the only way to do that is to slow down a little bit, be a little more disciplined, make sure you've covered all the bases and communicate it. So I, I think that's critically important uh, in that regard. Okay, anyway, I want more. Second question. Well, let me, let me jump into this. This is a, a far better question because, 
Um, uh, I would love to get your, imagine that I'm a 20, 30 person organization. We've never done remote working before. COVID has thrown us a wrench and now, you know, I've got 30 people working from their homes. I don't know when we're going to reopen our office. And I'm thinking through is, is this here to stay or am I, you know, should I try and go back again? And look, I, I know you've given me some fantastic advice around remote working, but just, just kind of give me some advice if I'm in that situation around remote working. Do you, how should I think about it? Is it here to stay? And, and what should I do? Um, you know, I hate to give you this answer, but it, it, it depends, right? So if, if you're an airline pilot, I don't think remote work is happening anytime soon, right? Uh, if you're in technology or if you're in a service industry or if you're in a um, content delivery type of business or organization, yeah, I think remote is, is here to stay. And, and I think it, uh, some hybrid is here to stay. So how do you do that? And the reality is it's really no different. So I, I had to learn this stuff, Chris, not because technology, but because I was working globally. You know, whatever country I happened to be in, I wasn't in all the other countries. So I, I remember I took a job uh, at H&R Block, and I went in, and I realized two weeks into the job, nothing I know how to do applies here at all because we have 110,000 employees across 10,000 locations, and they work three months out of the year. How do you think about differently about how to manage that? So when you're thinking about remote work, forget the location for, for, for starters. Don't think about the location. Whether that person is in the next office from you or the next town or the next country, don't worry so much about that. Think instead about what is it that they need to do? What's expected of them? Do they have clear goals? Do they know what needs to be delivered? You know, a general rule of thumb is the further away from someone, just kind of correlate it. You know, the further away, more the more communication. Wow. You know, the more remote somebody is, the more you need to communicate and set up times to make sure that people have an opportunity to engage back and forth of what's expected, what's not expected, get coaching, get feedback, get help, you know, et cetera. So I think number one is to not think so much about the location, instead think about the outcomes. What are we trying to do? You know, I worked at Microsoft, for example, and I get emails from people in the next office all the time. And when you'd actually physically walk in there, they're like, well, wait, what are you doing in my office, right? Send me an email. And if you think about remote work, how is remote work different from that? We might have all physically been in the same building in the same horrible commutes and the same traffic and all that stuff, but we were communicating through other means. How much communication, if you're listening to me right now, how much communication happens in person versus through other means? And if most of it's in person, then think about how you would adapt that and what needs to be adapted. But let's, you know, the other, let's not get too hung up on the location. Let's think more about the outputs. What do I want this person to accomplish? You know, if you have someone whose job it is to, I don't know, write content for you, marketing content, or, or put some sort of sales pitch together, or develop a new uh, product, or, you know, create something that you're going to go then put out as your organization to, to your customers, think about that. Don't think about the location. The second thing is that the only real difference is you have to be more disciplined. It's easy to just manage people in a walk by, catch you in the hallway, pull you into my office. Let's kind of just change stuff as we go. It's easy to do that. 
If the person is remote, you can still do that, though. You know, there's there's this oh, wait, years, it's 2020, right? There's like 100 ways to get a hold of people. I can text them. I can call them. I can Zoom them. I can FaceTime. I can email. I can hit them on Facebook. I mean, there's 100 ways to reach people, right? So if the shift is around the output and around what you expect people to do as opposed to where they are, then you're not going to find this change to be that traumatic, truly. Now, there are other complications, and I don't have the answers for those, right, uh, uh, in terms of when should you reopen because of COVID, those kinds of things. You know, I mean, number one, I'd say follow whatever your, you know, local government is telling you to do. But, but I think beyond that, think about what you're trying to accomplish and stay focused on that. And the last thing I would say just very quickly is remember that most of communication is nonverbal. 90% of communication is nonverbal. When you go into remote situations and you use a lot of technology, you're missing a lot of those connection points that are normally there. I used to, I, I set up when we first went, my whole team, when we went off from COVID and everyone was working at home, we did a 30 minute call and the purpose of that 30 minute call, Chris, once a week, we didn't talk about business. We talked about whatever was going on. We talked about some crazy show about some guy who had tigers or something for a while. I mean, we talked about, you know, what was happening in, you know, whatever sports, politics, whatever, or just we talked about what are people doing and how are, how are they coping? Spend extra time interpersonally. Wow. Use that medium to do that. Because remember when remote, when you're, when your face to face time goes away, you can still drive the same outcomes, but you miss the social threads. Be proactive and and purposeful about putting those threads in place. This is so powerful. I, I have to ask you one more, which is how do you build culture remotely? I mean, I, th- I think you've just given one really tangible example there, but do you have some others? Because I think just so many leaders are struggling with this right now, and I would love to get you know yeah. hear you share just some other practical ways that you've seen this you know work because we're all struggling trying to build culture remotely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really the same way you build it not remotely, right? Which is what culture, what is culture, right? If you start with that question, it's some amorphous thing in between what you aspire to be and what you actually are, right? So somewhere in there is sort of becomes your culture. But it often comes down to what you tolerate, what you recognize, what you reward. Those kinds of things create a culture. And you build a culture remotely the same exact way you build a culture in person. You know, and again, having the experience of managing people all over the world, I had, you know, typically I would have to do sometimes two team meetings because of time zones. I literally 24 hours in a day, I couldn't get people all, you know, not be two in the morning for somebody. But you build culture the same way. You set your goals. You define what's accepted. You recognize and reward things that that meet that goal. You know, you do you, you follow through on the same thing where you praise publicly and you sort of coach privately. You know, all of those same things that you do in person, you do remotely. Don't stop recognizing your people. Don't stop doing team events. Don't stop, you know, giving people, um, you know, positive feedback. Don't stop coaching people. You know, every time we would do a remote sort of something like this, right? Let's say we were doing a Zoom call or something for uh, in, a, in a team environment uh, or it happened to be a service or whatever. I would get the team on the call right afterwards and say, OK, how'd that go? You know, what would you change if you had to do it differently? 
Any, any feedback for me? You know, how would you have, how should we approach this next time? Get people engaged. That should be no different than what you do in person. You know, and with the technology and the, the beauty of the technology we have is it enables us to be connected. The challenge with the technology is that oftentimes because it's, we, we over, we overemphasize efficiency over effectiveness. Mm. So we think about technology from an efficiency play. I can hit send, boom, I'm done. I hit, e- I hit, I drafted an email and I hit send on my computer and now I'm done and I move on to the next task. No, because if you were announcing that in a room full of people in a room, you'd have a bunch of discussion about it. Follow the same protocol. Don't just hit send, set up a quick call, a quick Zoom call or whatever, or chat thread or whatever, and gain, get that feedback. No differently than you do in person. Here's, the, here's what I would tell you, Chris, is that your good managers are going to be good managers in person or remotely. Your bad managers are going to be worse managers remotely than they are in person. Wow. So first of all, recognize, you know, you know, where you may need to do some interventions, right? If you have a manager that's really struggling and then you go into a remote environment, don't expect that person to get better, right? So you're going to have to coach and help people and, uh, and really recognize and give people tools. But, you know, the, the fundamental principles don't change. People are going to perform because they feel valued as a person. They feel valued and, and they understand the context of what they're working on. They get recognized when they do things well. They get help and feedback when, when they need it. Those things don't change in a remote environment. This is Gold Michael. Thank you so much for making the time to take us through. I've got like a page of notes here. I've got to go and implement after this call. So let's move to the, to the quick fire segment. We've got five uh, really simple short questions. Yeah. Uh, we're going to step through. So the first one is um, share with us the most impactful leadership book that you've ever read. Uh, most impactful leadership book is a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. It completely changed my perspective. It's a really, it's like a, it's written like a parable. It's not very long. You can bang it out in an hour, hour and a half or so. Really simple book. It's a story, but it's about how we view other people. And it's about how we view, do we view other people as objects? Uh, do we sort of put them in this box uh, and then put attributes on that person? It's about how we create narratives ourselves in how we view other people. It, it was an absolute game changer. The first time I read it, it forever changed not only how I manage people, it changed how I thought about people in general in life. And, and there's very few books I can say that about. So, you know, read leadership and self-deception. It's fantastic, um, and it's a real game changer. Fantastic. Okay, the second question is: If you could use a word to describe your leadership style, what would it be? Hmm. Um, optimistic. Believe in your people. Believe that genuinely believe that you can accomplish great things. Genuinely believe that your people are capable of doing things even greater than what they're showing today. Create a scenario where people get to rise to their expectations. Wow. That's powerful. Believing in people. And, and people remember that many years later. Uh, you know, I know people said to me, hey, you know, thank you for believing in me when uh, right. very few people did. It's, it's a powerful tool. Okay, third yeah. question is, what is your biggest distraction when working from home? 
Uh, other than the delivery, Amazon deliveries and my dog, uh, I got kids all on Zoom school here. You know, I'd say my biggest distraction at home, believe it or not, uh, is probably the kitchen. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's too easy to just go grab a bunch of food, you know, and uh, so I've had to watch that. Like the COVID-15, I've heard people say that, 15 yeah. pounds. Yeah, I've been working out a lot, so a lot of walking and stuff, and so I think, I think I've been doing okay there. But, yeah, it's a distraction for sure. Okay, number four, what is your biggest failure? Uh, my biggest failure, you know, every time I leave something or every time I look back on something, I think I could have done it better. You know, in fact – if you ask me five minutes after this interview is done, you know, what could I have changed? I have a whole list of things uh, that I would probably be able to tell you. And if I think about my biggest failure, it would probably be not being present. You know, when I look back, I think about times when now in hindsight, I wish I had just been more present. I wish I'd just been a little bit more relaxed, a little bit less, you know, uptight about trying to get something done and accomplish something and maybe spend a little bit more time, you know, in a, in relationships and a little bit more time in, uh, you know, those moments that, that connect us all together. Um, so if anything, you know, that's kind of been a goal of mine is to be more present. And I'd say it's probably my biggest failure looking back is that there's many times when I got too hung up on tasks and activities and I, you know, I missed some real opportunities to, to build deeper relationships and, and learn and, and be open to growth and learn new things. You know, that's, that's certainly a kind of a constant I'm trying to work on that a lot. Okay. The last question in the quick fire, tell us about a time when someone believed in you, uh, which is almost the opposite of, I guess what, what you mentioned before is one of your greatest strengths. Tell us the time someone believed in you when they shouldn't have. Wow. I mean, honestly, I feel like everybody that's given me a job fits <laughs> <laughs> qualification. You know, I truly, uh, it's, no, there's been, there's been so many people along the way in my life. I, I, you know, I've been really blessed to have people who will tell me the truth. Um, and I think early on, the person that comes to mind uh, is a woman named Paula Vota. She was my manager at GE. And, she gave me a chance in HR in a, in a really difficult environment in a pretty, pretty important job, having never done HR before. Now, she understood. I knew the concepts. I'd managed people. I'd managed businesses. I had some of the, the academics and the education, but I had never done HR before. She could have picked any one of, I'm sure, thousands of people who had five, ten years experience and brought him into that role and she gave me a chance and, and I'm eternally grateful for her for giving me that opportunity. And it's enabled me and changed me in ways where I try to look for talent in unusual places. Mm. And I try to give people opportunities they've never had before. If I can see in them that ability to three dimensionalize things, that, that, that problem solving ability, that optimism, that, that the character, I will give people opportunities to do stuff they haven't done before because of that. And so, yeah, she changed the course of my career and, and my life, and uh, I'm very grateful for Paula. She's she's fantastic. Um, she's still run. She's running HR for NASCAR now down in uh, down in Florida. Uh, she's in a she's an amazing mentor, and and she taught me a lot of stuff in the first six months I worked with her. 
uh, that has stuck with me and really helped me um, in my career. Fantastic. Okay, last question of the interview, and this is not quick fire. Feel free to expand on it as much as you want, but you've had the opportunity to work with some really amazing leaders, you know, GE, DocuSign, other, you know, phenomenal companies. What are some of the characteristics that you've observed in, you know, the really great leaders that you've worked with? Yeah, number one, I'd say it's, it's, it's vision. Um, the ability to be always looking ahead and seeing what, you know, needs to happen. And then that has to be partnered a hundred percent with uh, a fundamental belief in the value of people and, and not people as objects or means to accomplish a task, but people as individuals. Um, and I think about the, in my own career, the people that you'd be willing to run through walls for, right? The, where you just wanted, you gave your discretionary energy, you know, in the shower and traffic, whatever it is, you know, at middle of the day on Saturday, you're thinking about something and you're like, oh, what if we did it this way or that way? The leaders that can, that can help you help teams be able to tap into that. Um, they're the ones that change the world. And, you know, there has to be that combination of, thinking outside the box and, and sort of having a vision for what things could be. Um, but it has to be combined with, you know, really valuing people. Um, you, there are leaders that have done great things and they've done great things in maybe not so nice or not so um, really good people ways. Um, but most of the time, any great leader you think of, any person who has changed the world has been able to tap into something that uh, helps people feel valued and respected and want to do their best. And I think that's the number one, that's probably the number one quality, you know, and the only reason I put vision first is because as a leader, it's just required. I mean, you, you need to be out in front and leading. If there's nothing, if nowhere to lead anybody, then, you know, you uh, helping people live to, you know, reach their potential doesn't have the context, but that's probably the most important thing. You know, there's a lot of other characteristics that you could talk about, people who were great communicators, you know, people who could uh, recognize talent and help people be successful, uh, people who could help solve problems, and, and, and people who could innovate, come up with cool things. I mean, there has a long list of stuff and attributes that I think are important, but if you can tap into the hearts and minds of people, you know, you can change the world. Wow. What a phenomenal place to uh, wrap up this interview. Michael, thank you so much for making the time. This is going to help so many people in terms of taking these ideas and implementing them in the organizations. And, and so thank you for giving up your time to be with us today. Absolutely, Chris. And, and I'm always happy. As you know, I love working with you and, and the team, and I'm always happy to help. And if anybody wants to reach out, uh, anybody wants uh, resources uh, or wants to talk about things, uh, I'm always available. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it very much. And that's going to be it for us on this episode of Principles and Practice. Thank you again for coming in. If you like the content, don't forget to subscribe. We're going to have another one out next week. Hit that bell on your way down to the description below to find those extra goodies. Uh, and we'll see you next time on Principles in Practice.